Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The World of the Icelanders. Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and today we're going to be talking about the world of the Icelanders in preparation for our next short segment on Ref the Sly from the Sagas of the Icelanders. But before we get into that, I got a few things to discuss with you. Uh, first off, to our patrons, um, we will be sending two stickers at the same time when we begin our next book. Uh, which is On War by Clausewitz. The reason for this being, this next book, Ref the Sly, is going to be so short that it's going to be rather inconvenient to send the two different stickers at two different times. And so to save on postage, we are going to be sending them both at the same time. Because Clausewitz is going to be very, very long. All of us, dear listeners, are in for a, a bit of a slog because Clausewitz's tome is is quite large. If you haven't seen it for yourself, it looks like some archaic manual for for dangerous rituals or something like that. It's massive, just massive. I'm looking forward to it, however, because it means consistent subject matter for the course of a while. So I, I am looking forward to it. However, back to my main point, we're going to be sending both those stickers at the same time. Now, we are going to be sending some other sticker uh, throughout the course of the book at some point, because again, like I said, it's quite long, so it seems cheap to uh, only give you the one for the for the course of this like year-long study. So we're going to be thinking up something else to send you for a midway point, so be expecting that as well. On to a little bit of wargaming stuff. It was my first time fighting in over a year this last week, and it was wonderful. Y'all, I, it has been entirely too long since I held a sword against somebody else. And to be honest with you, I didn't know how I was going to do. Um, I've had some health issues that are going on. And of course, all of us have been out of practice uh, due to the pandemic. And while I've been keeping up with my practice, doing my forums, doing bag work, I haven't been practicing against real people. And as those of you who are fighters well know, uh, nothing quite beats practicing against another person. A bag can only take you so far. So I was trepidatious about my first time being on the field, especially against my apprentice, uh, Turkey Feathers, who you all will get to meet uh, next next episode. He's going to be joining me to talk about the first uh, section of Ref the Sly. So I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I, I know he is too. But uh, so he steps up, and he's one of the better fighters in the realm, and I was unsure about how I was going to do, but dear friends, let me tell you, do you know that scene from Two Towers 
uh, right after Saruman has been cast out of Theoden, and Gandalf turns to him and says something along the lines of, um, your hands would remember their strength better if they grasped your sword. It was one of those moments for me. I, my footing became sure, my body knew exactly what it was doing, and I had a, 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 little, a good little while of fantastic fighting. So it was wonderful to get back out there, and I hope you all are able to as well. Even those of you who are not necessarily physical war gamers, just getting out and enjoying some of this, uh, these, these warmer times and these times when you can breathe a little bit easier. Uh, yeah, get out there. It feels good, y'all. In the ongoing saga of myself versus TF, the Blood Angels versus the Gene Stealer cult, uh, we crushed it again. And this time it was something that was decided in the first round and before the first round, and it played out for the rest of the match. Uh, we were doing Uprising, which is from the Kill Team Annual 2019, I believe. And it's one where it's, it's a Gene Stealer cult uh, scenario, and the Defender the non-gene stealers, are in the center of the board where the gene stealers occupy the outside. And the object of the game is to kill the defender's commander. If the commander is alive at the end of the combat, the defender wins. If the attacker manages to kill the commander, the attacker wins. So it's a very, very, very focused style of play. And because I have been doing very well against him in the rest of the campaign due to my crunchy crunch weapons on my acolytes, he thought to use a little bit of guile. It just so happened that a piece of the terrain was, a good portion of it was inside his deployment zone. So he placed all of his dudes up on top of this little tower, this little piece of terrain. And uh, immediately I start sweating because it's perfectly within the rules, of course. Uh, but that means that I have to spend some time getting over there to the base of the tower, spend some time getting up the tower if there's space to do so in the whole while he and his space marines have bolters trained on my dudes that have five ups. So I am, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't very pleased about that in terms of a tactical sense, but, uh, the gene stealers in kill team have an ability that on a five up before the game begins, they can make a regular movement move, um, if they roll a five or higher. So it just so happened that like one f entire wing of my little squad there, got their five ups and were able to hunker up right at the base of that tower. So that was awesome. That was the first thing that went right that enabled my victory because that was one little group of dudes who didn't have to slog it across the field to the base of the tower and who could get up and distract the fellows that were there on top while everybody else got in. The other thing that came uh, massively, this, this small, small little overlook uh, contributed massively to the game is, uh, Turkey Feathers got the initiative. So during the movement phase, he went first. And what he could have done was move one of his dudes just slightly out onto the walkway that was coming out of this uh, little tower. And in doing so, he would have forced my dudes to not take the gap that was right there, but instead to have to go up over a railing or around the side, costing them valuable inches and time. He did not do this. And in doing so, I was able to weasel my way up there and get an early uh, kind of penetration into his line, which I then exploited for the rest of the match. So those two things, me getting that early move and him making that very small tactical error uh, got me the match. 
like I said, I was I sat there and puzzled after he set up because the defender has to set up all their models first and then the attacker does for this particular scenario. So I'm sitting there just kind of puzzling for like five minutes straight trying to figure out exactly how I want to set up my dudes to come at it. Yeah, he had me in a bind. Um, so those two things definitely worked out in my favor, but uh, that is the, the most recent adventure in the ongoing Kill Team campaign between myself and Turkey Feathers. Uh, lastly, before we get into the, the meat and potatoes of this, discussing the world of the Icelanders, just one more completely unrelated thing that also relates to kind of the joy that I was talking about with the fighting in that I'm getting back into music. I, I love music, music very much. I know I haven't really talked about it this, that much on the show, but it's been a while since I've been a part of it, and I am super stoked to be rejoining one of the bands that I was previously in. So um, I suppose there's a, there's a renewal on my enjoyment of life. And uh, I suppose I would use that as encouragement to say if there's something that you loved doing, you know, a year and a half ago that's kind of fallen by the wayside, get back to it. It, it tastes just as sweet, if not sweeter, because of the absence. Well, I think that's enough waxing poetic or philosophical uh, for the time being. So let's go ahead and jump in to our first section on the sagas. As we begin our look into the world of the Icelanders, I do want to point out something that is rather unique about this selection. In every other season, we have covered a book that has a author, a discernible author whose life we can talk about and whose times we are able to cover in a more uh, succinct and detailed manner. In the particular case of these sagas, there is no official author to the most of them, including the one that we're doing, Ref the Sly. So instead of doing a uh, more focused look at the author's life, we're just going to do a, a better, more focused look at the entirety of what we're talking about here. So this section is going to be divided up into four subsections. The first one, we are going to be discussing the sagas themselves and their significance within literature. In the second section, we're going to be talking about the time of heroes, which is, you know, the, the time that the sagas take place, the, the Greenland that was in the age of the Vikings. In the next section, subsection three, we will be discussing the time of the scribe, which is the time that all of these sagas were written. And lastly, we are going to talk a little bit about the saga of Ref the Sly itself and some of the, the things that make it special before we jump into properly studying it. So, first off, let's talk about the sagas, because they are fantastic. If you haven't uh, read them, they are definitely worth a read. I plowed through them throughout the course of a month one summer because I was just so enthralled with the imagery and the writing style and the amount of realism that went into a lot of these stories. Like, uh, you know, most of them are either fantastic history or fictional history. You know, much like we call, you know, historic fiction in this day and age, they're very much a lot like that in, in most cases. That doesn't mean that they're not incredibly engaging to read. They're kind of like the Homeric epics in that way. In a lot of ways, they capitalize on historic events that happened. They use the names of folks who were involved in said historic events, but 
it's a completely fantastical retelling of of that story, uh, the original, the whatever you coin as the truth. And culturally, it's comparable to, like I said, Homer, Dante, and Shakespeare, in that the literature defined a culture, defined a civilization in a lot of ways, and was pivotal to not just the works within that country, but also the influence in the countries surrounding. So these stories were not just the, the ragtag collection of a bunch of random myths from the North Atlantic. No, this is, this is the solid cultural background for an entire people. So it's, these are a big deal. They're a big deal in a, in a liter literary sense. And they're unique in a lot of ways. They are rather unique from a lot of this other literature because they were written about common folk rather than aristocracy. Think about it. You know, all the Shakespeare stuff, all of the, the novels that kind of came out of the, you know, every century preceding this one in Europe and America, almost always had to do with either rich landowners or nobility or royalty or, or some, some sort of high up class. Stuff like Oliver Twist or things that involved a lower class were fairly uncommon until relatively recently. Because you can imagine it was mostly the upper class who read so I would imagine that a lot of the, the books would be tailored in their direction, or rather had the leisure time to really read in that way. But these sagas reflect that in a lot of ways. For one thing, there's the inclusion of work. You know, a lot of these stories about aristocracy, they're just sort of lounging around all day, engaging in these dramas amongst themselves socially. They don't really seem to have much to do. Whereas the sagas, there's a lot to be done. The majority of the sagas isn't about fighting. It's not about uh, going out and Viking with your most Vikingist Viking. It's about husbandry, house chores, land maintenance like agriculture, and trading. These are the things that are included a lot in there. And so in, in doing so, it makes it a lot more relatable to folks like you and me. Or I assume folks like you and me. You may be royalty on the other end of this, uh, listening to a poor peon like myself talk about these things, but I'm assuming that we're all, you know, not caviar-eating folks. So, it, it speaks to us. It speaks to the working-class heart to have these kinds of stories. They're about, you know, historical uh, heroes kind of put into a, a fantasy setting and have them not have to be princes and princesses. So, it's nice. It's nice in that way. At least I found it refreshing. And in that same vein, they were very plain speaking, rather than these long courtly rambles. I mean, some of the stuff that came out, I mean, you guys had to read Shakespeare in high school. I'm pretty sure that just about everybody who's listening to this uh, all over the world, you had to read Shakespeare at some point. He's kind of inflicted on the majority of us. And some of those rambles that his noble players go on, oh my gosh. Talk about wanting to hear yourself talk. Now, don't get me wrong. I enjoy Macbeth and Hamlet and uh, Comedy of Errors just as much as the next guy. But there's definitely a, a impression that these folks have a lot of spare time in which to just kind of speak to themselves. Not so much with the Icelanders. They have stuff to do. They have sheep that need tending, crops that need sowing. You know, they, they're, a, they're a busy folk. And so when they speak to one another, it's very plain. They say, hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. How's the family? Family's good. Yeah, 
like regular people talk. <laughs> so it's nice. I mean, there, there is a lot of, there's still poetry. There's still poetry that's kind of uh, woven in there. There's still wittiness that's woven in there. But by and large, it is still absolutely plain speak between individuals. Now, sometimes there is supernatural elements. Kind of, there are supernatural elements kind of included in here. Some of them, you know, they talk about the gods or they talk about trolls or about other, you know, kind of mythical kind of things. And they definitely add to the story. But you, you can definitely tell that the, the teller took some creative license when it comes to reality. Others don't so much. Others seem like almost complete historic tellings and by the records that we have, pretty darn accurate to things that actually happened in history. So, again, some of them are more for entertainment value or for imparting lessons upon the listener, and some of them are instructive in the terms of the history of the people. So, it's kind of a toss-up between them. And they're both entertaining. They're both very cool, but they have different purposes. And so that's, that's interesting, too. A lot of them are about criminals and outcasts. Again, rather than these courtly figures, you have folks that are on the fringe of society having their stories being told, and it kind of reflects the Icelanders' kind of need for freedom, this kind of, this, this almost admiration of those who can live outside the bounds of society, or at least find this, the tales of them intriguing. It reminds me, I'm from Montana, so it reminds me of our utter fascination with the whole cowboy culture that was out here. Uh, the outlaws, uh, the early towns, uh, the boom towns that popped up around here in, in terms of mining, and the, the violent culture that went along with it. There, there's a fascination with it. I can absolutely see it. And folks like Wyatt Earp have been blown up into these fantastical, legendary figures when they were just people. Wyatt Earp was just a man. He had flaws. But because of a, a shootout and because of a, a very interesting life that could be told in story form, he's immortal now. In a lot of ways, these criminals and outcasts were kind of made that, that way too. Some of them may very well have been based on real, real folks, but because of the constant retelling of their story, they became legends, which I find really cool. And the, lack, the, the last thing that we see that really makes the sagas unique is that lack of courtly love. Now, courtly love being, and I know this is way after the time we're talking about, but think Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, that long, drawn-out courtship between, you know, Mr. Darcy and... It's been a while since I read it, but you know who I'm talking about. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of courtly love, or even in, in Shakespeare stuff, you know? The, the, the kind of love, the sort of dramas that take place between uh, lovers or between... The folks that are married, it's the basis for a lot of his plays. You don't see that in the sagas. There's people who are married, and there's people who want to get married. But it's it's not this, you know, long, drawn-out, courtly love. Again, these were busy people who had things to do. And so if, if there was a matter of getting married, somebody would be attracted to somebody else, go up and say, hey, you want to get married? And the person would be like, yeah, sure. Or not so much. Like, there's not a whole lot of super romantic elements to these stories, which for me is kind of refreshing. I, I don't necessarily care for super involved romances when I'm trying to read something. I feel like a lot of the times it takes away from the plot line. Lord of the Rings was perfectly fine without having super involved romances. We knew that Aragorn was in to, to Arwen, and we knew he was in to Eowyn. 
but we, they didn't have to go into these long things about it. Like it was, it was definitely a, a part of the story, but it wasn't a focal part of the story, which was nice. I think for most of us, our love life is not the absolute forefront. We've got careers, we've got families. Our love life is probably not the absolute front. I, I, for some of you, I, I, I may be speaking out of my out of my butt here because I may be just speaking for myself. My <laughs> my love life might be at the the front. But for those of us who are kind of burnt out on those stories, these ones are refreshing in that way as well. I like the sagas. I, I think that might come across here. I I really am a fan of these uh of these writings. But like I said in the beginning of this section, there's no known authors for them which is kind of strange. In a lot of other cases, we know who the author was, or at least have a pretty good idea. There's somebody, even even a fantastical author, we don't even know if Homer existed or not, or if Homer was a, a pen name that applied to several different writers who used the same style. We just don't know. But there at least was the presumption of an author for those. It's not important here, because it's not about personal themes. It's about community themes. If we look at Dante, another one of my favorite authors, just about everything about his his divine comedy is personal. You know, as you're going through the layers and you're interacting with the poor souls that are trapped in the various layers of hell, they're people that he knew in life. And a lot of times he's throwing shade at them from the from this work. He was he was very catty, our Dante. And even though the divine comedy came to represent a lot of Catholic thought in the Middle Ages, which is strange because originally it began as a work of fiction. Before that, there was no detailed concept of hell. Dante pulled that completely out of the air. It was, it was a complete uh, literary fiction that then became iconic within culture. Just about everybody, you're like, oh, the nine layers of hell. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, before Dante, there was just hell. Just that's where that was it. That was, it was hell. But again, not the sagas. There's no personal themes. There's no personal agenda throughout these. They're just stories who were told by people. And they're written in a sophisticated prose. You would think that people who are largely thought of as barbarians would have barbaric works. But as is shown for most things, our assumptions about these Northern Atlantic folks are often misplaced because these are written in a sophisticated prose that we don't see regularly in mainland Europe until the 16th and 17th centuries. It's very impressive. And, and for those of us who, who may not be as, as massive on the, the literature, prose is very much similar to poetry, but it's written with more irregularity and sounds more like conversation uh, than, than most poetry does. Think in terms of rap, those rappers who choose to kind of trail off one sentence in kind of one stanza and then the next stanza pick up that same sentence. It still fits in there. There's still definitely a, a rhythm, a motion to what they're saying, but it's irregular. So that's, I, I explained that poorly. The English majors are going to, are going to be on me for this, but that's kind of the idea. It's like poetry, but not. More things that kind of make these sagas unique is that they also have a genealogy that's presented at the beginning. And this is very similar, actually, to the Old Testament, where at the beginning of a lot of the books, the protagonist is kind of 
hailed, is heralded by this long, usually multiverse recitation of their lineage, going all the way back to whoever, either David or Solomon or Abraham or whatever the case may be, whatever point of authority that the author is trying to reach, that is something that is, is regularly provided in the Old Testament. And it's very similar here. In most of the sagas, you have long genealogies that are given for the majority of the characters to give them some form of legitimacy within the story. And a lot of the times these included either unconfirmed relations to kings you know, by way of noble ancestry or to gods. And this is not uncommon. Uh, in, in a lot of the world for various people, various uh, warriors and rulers to claim some sort of patronage from a divine figure. Achilles, for instance, uh, had divine parents by his, by his telling of it. So, you know, this is again part of that fantastical retelling of these historic events. And as I mentioned before with the with the prose and with the, the poetry kind of mixed in with the plain speaking, most of these heroes are also poets and they're very witty because for these folks, language was treated as another area of combat. It wasn't considered to be uh, purely an intellectualist game to speak well and to uh, speak with a large vocabulary and with wit. I feel like in a lot of places in the world, my, my home country included, to speak with any sort of eloquence, to speak with any sort of wider application of the language, sees you viewed as uh, presumptuous, not, not presumptuous, uh, pretentious. That's the word I'm looking for. But not so much in these times, not so much with the Icelanders. Being able to speak well and being able to kind of jibe back at your opponent and also break into verse showed not just intelligence, but also that you were treating language as seriously as everybody else did, that it was another form of combat. So in these ways, the sagas are very unique and also definitive of the culture and the area in which we're talking about. And so again, they're, they're not just a, a random collection of writings from, from barbarians of the North Atlantic. We're talking about a sophisticated, cultured people that were able to put their thoughts to page with surprising eloquence. Next, we come to our second subsection, the time of heroes. And this is the time by which the, the protagonists of the sagas were doing their thing. The time in which these sagas took place. Uh, it's nice to have an actual definite time period that we can consult here because obviously Iceland was a rather barren piece of earth before the Nor Nordic settlers arrived there. So it's nice to be able to look and say, okay, we know that they at least didn't come from before this. So uh, in terms of being able to study people, anthropolo anthro anthropologically, I'm, still, I'm sure I still messed it up speaking, uh, it's, it's very convenient as any sort of scholar. And the time, of course, that we're talking about is the Viking Age, as it is known to a lot of folks. And again, this, this is nice because we have good, good time estimates on when it began. Uh, traditionally, it is uh, cited as beginning in 793 current era, with the first significant raid being at Lindisfarne, a monastery in England. 
and this has been uh, romanticized in a lot of different shows. Again, if you've if you've watched anything coming out in pop culture concerning Vikings in the last little bit, some romanticized attack on this foreign has transpired. So the majority of us are extremely well versed in what exactly went on there. But as it, as it sounds, there was a raid on a monastery. Not a whole lot of fight put up because. Uh, the Catholic Church does not really produce warrior monks. And yeah, that was kind of the beginning of this age because they went back to, to Norway, said, hey, look what we got. And more folks decided to start doing that. Now, I know that that's an oversimplification of the time. A lot of it was about acquisition of land uh, and other resources. So this was the start, though. This is when historians say that the Viking Age began. And they traditionally explain the end being at 1066 with the failed invasion of King Harold III, who was defeated by the Saxon King Harold Goodwinson at Stamford Bridge, a battle I believe we covered in this show previously. Uh, I want to say season one. I'm normally better about this. I'll <laughs> I normally look things up. Uh, either that or I've, I've read about it so often that it's just ingrained in my head. Because 1066 is one of those dates I will remember until the day I die. In the 870s, however, which is more to point with what we're talking about, that was when the there was a larger Nordic expansion, and they were settling all over the place. Uh, of course, England, France, Iceland, right, uh, Greenland, and then parts of North America were also settled uh, during this time by the this this explosion of Nordic culture that was occurring. So Iceland was also settled in the, the 870s. Now Icelanders very quickly became, culturally speaking, very conservative, which is to say resistant to change, very traditionalist in the way they do things. They're also very rural. Anybody that comes from rural areas will know that there's a certain culture that is taken on when folks are, are more isolated than they would be in major cities. And then, of course, it was rather homogenous. Whereas in other Nordic countries, uh, Norway, Sweden, Finland, there was a whole lot of interchange of culture, not with just mainland Europe and each other, but also with parts of Asia. Uh, and also there was uh, blood that was circulated. People traveled in between, had, had children and had families kind of here and there. And so even though Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark were all quote-unquote Viking countries, in terms of uh, genetics and in terms of uh, heritage, they were all rather far more mixed than Iceland was. Iceland, very few people came. And when folks left, they often came back, but not with any sort of uh, children or anything like that. They just went on on raids to kind of make their money and come back and, and have the reputation to get married at that point. They, they're they individual in that way in a lot of ways too. Again, they're very isolated where they are and they managed to keep that isolation for quite a long time. And they had no real towns. Nothing that we would consider towns anyways. There were you know loose collections of houses or you could definitely maybe see your neighbors sometimes but there wasn't what we would consider a town in most places there. They, they would come together on occasion for certain festivals or for the all thing that takes, took place every single year, the large law council meeting that was absolutely indicative for their, their legal culture. But as a general rule, no. There were the, no large 
gathering areas. And so all of this kind of contributed to this, this very interesting culture that was the Icelanders. Now, the sagas are very cool because they give us kind of a, or a very detailed view into the culture and daily life of the Icelanders. A lot of other forms of writing, they give you an idea of the story, but they, they're not really specific on how people were, their regular day-to-day -day life. Whereas the sagas, like I said before with the work, are very normal in the way that they approach things, which is to say that it's very approachable from a common folk standpoint. And these detail all sorts of different things, from cultural norms, conflict resolution, gift-giving, gender roles, hospitality, family loyalty, history, economics, sports, agriculture, and domestic production are among the topics that are, that are covered there that give us a glimpse into what actual life would have been like for these folks. And so that's neat. I find that, I find that to be really cool, that we, can, that we can look into their lives like that. One of the things I want to stress at this point, again, I know that I called this section the Viking Age, but I think it needs to be understood that there were very few actual quote-unquote Vikings within these cultures. The way we think of them being the raiders and the warriors and the, the adventurers of legend, that was a handful of folks not in any way representative of the majority of the population. The majority of the population were workers. You know, they tended their farms or, or they went hunting or they managed things, traded goods. They were regular folks. Again, uh, Viking was more of a job description than it was any sort of ethnic definition. So uh, I think that needs to be stressed. Like I said, in most of the sagas, folks are not killers. They're not, maybe a lot of the times the protagonist is, but most of the folks around them aren't. They're just people. Or if they do try to be warriors, they're not very good at it because they, they didn't train at it. They're just farmers. Keep that in mind when we're talking about the Vikings. There's a reason I'm calling them the Icelanders because very few of the folks we're talking about were actual, to definition, Vikings. Now, I mentioned to go farmer, and I think I said just farmers, and that may have been a massive uh, twisting of what we're talking about here, because a farmer in this particular case might control what we would consider a town-sized area with upwards of 50 to 60 workers that were either indentured or had come to work there to pay off debts or, or be able to make some money or whatever. Farmers were actually quite powerful when it came to Iceland, because the majority of them controlled quite a bit of capital and therefore had had quite a bit of sway in local communities. So when you hear us dis discussing farmers, know that that definitely has a different connotation within the culture that we are talking about. Now, I also know in the present day that not that most farmers are not just little mom and pop operations, that the majority of farms that we have now are large industrial uh farms that employ a ton of people. So in terms of that idea, but without the industrialization, that's kind of the idea of what we're going for here. Another thing that's extremely important to understanding the culture of the Icelanders is the role of the godi. I know I'm probably mispronouncing that, but this is a, a word that is kind of synonymous with priest. And they are very important figures when it comes to Icelandic culture. Uh, they're spiritual leaders, 
like they are in a lot of other parts of the Nordic world, but they are also political leaders in this particular case. Uh, as political leaders, their main roles were as arbiters between either individuals or clans, even townships, or lawmakers. And so a law council would meet once a year in order to set new laws, uh, discuss new fines and punishments, and enforce outlawry or banishment that had been discussed at previous councils or in smaller regional councils. Because in that particular case, it doesn't make much sense for one small group to be like, okay, this guy is dangerous, we need to banish him and have him just be able to wander to the next settlement and be cool there. So when, when these things would happen, they would become a Iceland-wide understood phenomenon. Now, the number of representatives, the number of, of godis, uh, was set at 39, and they were, this was regional representation. So different areas of Iceland had either different numbers of godis depending on the number of folks living there or on geographic isolation or whatever the case may be. Regardless, this was a, a regional representative body. They didn't really have an executive branch. Most of the time it was just taken on good faith and people understood that this was the custom that folks abided by. There was no national constitution until uh, 930. So they were able to, to hold out quite a bit with a rather informal government with no clear lines of secession, which is interesting. That doesn't really happen very much in most areas of the world. And they had local systems of welfare that were maintained by these godis. And these forms of welfare uh, ranged from things including uh, the care of orphans, compensation for loss in the case of uh, you know, violence taking place or something like that, and assistance in case of damages, in case of disasters. Because sometimes you know, the storm comes and, and blows a bunch of things over or the sea rises up and washes away half your property. And because everybody's used to depending on one another as a community, folks helped out. So there was absolutely uh, local systems of welfare in place. One of the other big things to understanding the time of heroes is to understand honor as a social construct. Honor means different things in different cultures. In some cultures, it represents certain values, and in others, it has completely different values. In a lot of cases, it is kind of defined as a part of the warrior culture, uh, a system of rules that warriors live by that are, are dictated kind of to them traditionally. But again, kind of how that manifests can be very different. And in the particular case of the Icelanders, of course, honor was somewhat based on strength and martial prowess. Uh, if you could handle yourself, you were going to do well. And, and this is very similar to the majority of, of uh, the world's kind of inner politics until only very, very recently. And even now, uh, people run and, and have their entire political careers based on the fact that they were military. You know, this old warrior idea. And so, obviously those things were important. But other things that were very important uh, to the Icelanders in terms of honor was generosity. Generosity was expected, uh, not just with your family and friends, but with your, your community, and even sometimes with your enemies. Generosity was a, a huge boon to one's honor. Prudence was another one. Again, we have this stereotypical view in our minds of the, the Nordic peoples being hard-drinking, 
kind of slovenly folk who, who don't really have a mind for decorum whatsoever, but prudence was absolutely a, a virtue within Icelandic culture. Now, obviously, getting down and partying wasn't necessarily frowned on, but knowing when to stop, knowing when to say what, and not just speaking your mind constantly, like attacked, was absolutely something that they practiced, or at least the ones who survived very long practiced. So it was a huge part of honor. Avoiding shame, obviously, that's pretty across the board. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. Avoiding Now, what shame means is culturally... Uh, it's, it's objective based on culture, but shame is something to be avoided. Having a good reputation, a reputation for telling the truth, a reputation for making sure that you, you keep your oaths, that you follow through on your obligations. These are all things that were very important in this, in this case too, that a person should be able to be trusted and should have a good reputation. Again, very important. And then distinction was another part of this idea of honor. Distinction in some way, you know, being able to, people say, oh my gosh, you know, that's so-and-so, uh, you know, they, they won the battle of such and such, or they, they killed so-and-so, they're a big deal. Or, oh yeah, they, they own the largest farm around, or that person is the wittiest storyteller. Whatever it was, having some sort of distinction, something that sets you apart from others, also played into this idea of honor. And the function of this honor, especially in these smaller communities, uh, was paramount. Honor was absolutely everything in this time of heroes that we're talking about. And it functioned in several different ways. It functioned, of course, the bonds of kinship in these smaller areas where the population is so small, families sticking together and making sure that they knew they could have each other's backs, regardless of what was going down, honor could be depended on to enforce that. Marriage, being able to get into a good marriage and maintain a good marriage was kind of dependent on honor as well. Within the sagas, we see that for good and for bad. We see guys who have really good honor, who have pleasant home lives and whose wives are very pleased with them, and then dudes who have no honor, whose lives, who, whose wives berate them and or leave them. So marriage, definitely something that the honor played a huge part in. Friendship, like we were talking about with the bonds of kinship, it's very similar. Knowing that you had somebody's back, knowing that oaths of friendship and loyalty mean something, that's very important. And then of course for a political alliance. Why make an alliance with somebody that you do not trust? Why make an alliance with somebody who you know to be a backbiter? or to be a, a, a side dealer. So honor, very important in this particular part of, of their history. But kind of unique from other cultures, there was no outward recognition of this status. There was no real title or rank or manner of dress that distinguished these folks from other people. It was simply their reputations. It was simply the stories told about them. They didn't need to have tassels on their shoulders to say, I'm a big deal. People knew they were a big deal because they had proven that they were a big deal. So between all these things, we get an idea of the world that our heroes were living in, a world that was very much about survival about, against the elements of Iceland and the community that kind of was built around that. And particularly the systems of honor and like loyalty that really played a huge part in, in the entire culture.
and it cannot be stressed enough. And if you, if you read the sagas, you'll see it. It's very important throughout the entire saga is this entire idea of honor, because nothing is looked down upon more than a dishonorable person. The distaste is, is palpable when you're reading the, the sagas when it comes to somebody who is dishonorable. So in this way, we can understand at least a little bit of this time of heroes. And of course, in this short amount of time, I could in no way do detailed justice to this. I absolutely recommend pursuing a course of study in this or several courses of study in it. It is definitely full enough to do so. But in terms of what we're talking about, that's, that's kind of the most important bits. Here in subsection three, we're going to talk about the time of scribes, which is the time in which these stories were actually put to pen. And this time was between the 13th and the 14th centuries. It was contemporary of Chaucer, Romance of the Rose, and Dante on mainland Europe. If you haven't noticed, I'm taking absolutely every opportunity I can to mention Dante. He's one of my absolute favorite authors. I love the Divine Comedy, and I like talking about Dante. Absolutely nothing to do with military science, just an aside. At this time in Iceland, you had quite a bit of foreign influence taking place. They'd converted to Christianity, for instance, and so Christianity and all of its trappings had arrived full force. And then, of course, the Norwegian royalty and Norwegian customs, by, by other way, had also started to influence Iceland far more than when they had first been established and for, and for most of their history. The reason that these stories were actually preserved, because you might sit there and think, okay, well, if the Christians were already there and that was at the time of the writing, they were kind of known throughout the medieval period for not tolerating the works of other folks. But this was at a time in Christian scholarship where they were far more liberal and inquisitive with their information seeking. And so they, they actually sought to preserve the antiquarian past. In a lot of the, a lot of the information we have on the ancient Irish, the, the Celts, comes down from this period of history as well, when the, when the church was trying to bring together knowledge of the times previous rather than just trying to erase it. But this knowledge was exchanged both ways. Of course, these scribes also brought writings from mainland Europe, which influenced Icelandic culture at that point. As we said before in the previous section, Iceland had historically been very isolated and very conservative in its thought and in its culture. And so at this time, uh, we can see that those, those barriers, those walls were being weakened. Now in the 13th century, the 1200s, uh, this was kind of the, the best and the worst of times, as it were. It was called the Age of Stirlungs. That's an interesting word. It's actually the name of one of the five families that was competing for power at that time. That small, isolated idea, had, as the population grew, of course, consolidation of power began in various areas until you had these, these larger families that could field uh, fairly decently sized armies, fairly decently sized bodies of men uh, that, were, that were at odds with one another. And this was an age of consolidation of knowledge. As we previously said, the monks were going around and making sure that the, the tales of old Iceland, these tales that were being told by folks, were being committed to the page so they would not be forgotten by history. And so this was happening all over Iceland in terms of not just 
these stories, but also what the culture was like, the histories involved there. It was it was a really cool time to be a scribe in Iceland. However, it wasn't a very good time just to be a person in Iceland because it was also an age of great violence, atrocities, abuses of power, uh, and violations of decency and honor. That that glue that had held Iceland together for so long, those barriers had finally been broken down. This idea of honor no longer had any merit. What was the point in being honorable? It just made you easier to kill or easier to make a sucker out of. Suddenly we start to see those courtly intrigues that we spoke about being absent before. And so in all these ways, Iceland, as it was in the time of the heroes in the quote-unquote Viking Age, had completely disappeared. And at this time, the great families had begun integrating with Norway, each trying to win titles, favors, anything they could from the Norwegian king. And this kind of came to a head uh, between 1262 and 1264, when in order to stabilize the country, which was then tearing itself apart, uh, on the brink, if not completely in, a civil war, they became a vassal of Norway. Uh, because, you know, Norway was a pretty stable kingdom at that time. So they wanted a piece of that. And they would remain beholden to Norway in some way or another until declaring their independence once again in 1918. But this age of scribes was very interesting because, again, it, it marked a huge turn, not just in the church, but in terms of European history. And while there are troves upon troves of knowledge that were lost during the burning times or during the inquisitions, it, it's nice that, that any effort at all was made to preserve these cultures because that means we can study them today. So I guess thank you. 13th century monk or whoever <laughs> wrote this stuff down. We really appreciate it. Lastly, I do want to talk a little bit about this saga in particular, the saga of Ref the Sly, because it is an unusual saga. Now, I, I know I was just talking about how the sagas are unique in terms of the literature produced at this time, but Ref the Sly is unique even amongst the sagas themselves. For instance, it is primarily set outside of Iceland. So that is huge. A lot of the times the characters will kind of maybe leave Iceland for a little bit in order to either make a name for themselves, trading, or going on raids. But they will always come back. The stories take place in Iceland. Ref the Sly, he's kind of all over the place. Another one that sets this apart is that there's no genealogy applied at the beginning. We have no idea who Ref is, who he's related to, how he came to be known as Ref. No idea whatsoever, which is indicative that this is probably a work of entertainment, probably has absolutely no historic value whatsoever, probably was not real. Still, a very entertaining piece of work. The kind of trope that we're going to be dealing with here is that of a, of a kind of lazy, unmotivated youth, which is called a coal biter, within this text. I actually kind of like that term. I'm probably going to start using it more. Uh, and, and when they face obstacles, they rise to the challenge and become some sort of clever and powerful hero or anti-hero. So uh, that's kind of the trope we're going to be dealing with. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would Malark choose this particular saga? Uh, wouldn't it make more sense to choose one of the other ones? Well, 
as I pre previously stated, the majority of the other sagas include large swaths of, of their story that has nothing to do with combat, nothing to do with anything remotely related to combat. It's to do with farming and trading and dealing with legal matters. And while those things are very cool and very uh, good to know from a historic perspective, they don't really contribute to what we study in this show. And so as I was paging through trying to find the best saga in terms of what we do here, I decided on Ref the Sly because it's very entertaining for one thing. Uh, and also combat speaking, Ref is exactly as his name suggests, Sly. And so I figured uh, kind of transitioning from our last book, thinking about cleverness being our, our best weapon. I think that was the premise by which uh, we're going to be studying this one. So I hope that this was informative to you, this little history on the sagas and, and how we came to our story of Ref the Sly. I would absolutely encourage you, as usual, to go out and research whatever portions of this you want to know more about, because I know that this is a very, very brief telling of the information at play here, but this is kind of the bare bones of what we need to know. I absolutely encourage you, as always, like I said, to go out and expand your knowledge as well. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm -hmm.